Um, welcome to the Sport and History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institutes of Historical Research. This week we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Louise Elsesser. Hi Louise. Hello. Uh, Louise is a postgraduate researcher at the European University Institute in Florence and we'll be talking about that later on and what that is and she's completing a PhD there on the rise and fall of the horse's role in everyday British life. The paper that she presented at the Sport and Leisure History Seminar was based on her prize-winning paper which she gave at the BSSH's 2018 conference at the University of Westminster. So Louisa, can you, um, can you remind me of what the paper was about? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so the, the paper was about the history of polo and how the British picked it up from the Indians um, between sort of 1862 because that's the first time that a polo club was funded in Calcutta and in India and the beginning of the First World War just because it's sort of a handy time scope to follow. Yeah. Um, so it, it sort of starts with the, the British discovery of the, sport, of the sport in India and then follows, follows the discovery to, to the UK um, and then more sort of as an outlook because it would have just exploded the scope of, of the paper um, how it was in, internationalized really so it spreads to the European continent and to other parts of the okay. formal and informal empire yeah so you're looking at polo as a kind of a sporting cultural network and yes. how that network develops and how you, especially how it starts and then in that setting was sort of um, sort of impact or influence it had on very specific groups. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how, do, how did polo kind of, how does polo develop in India and then how does it make the jump from being an Indian sport into being a sport that the British kind of take up? So it, it, um, it the beginnings of polo, I mean polo is a very, very old game um, and the British pick it up by the first report you would find in a frontier from, frontier report from 1835. Um, and then it seriously is picked up by the mid-19th century when um, some officers from the British Army observe locals playing polo um, and then they start playing it themselves and then it, from then on it follows the usual pattern so it's institutionalized um, yeah. uh, they, they give the game written rules so they, um, they standardize the field size the height of the ponies that are allowed and that, that sort of yeah, stuff. So they limit the number of players. So it's the um, British that like to think that they invented lots of sports but in fact in, in, they pick up cultural practices whether they're indigenous or from elsewhere but what they do do is codify them isn't it and they, they, yeah. they turn them into a product. But I think it shouldn't it shouldn't be read as sort of a westernization of, of polo um, because it is not a sport and I find it quite striking it's not a sport that the British take to their colonies to sort of monitor social um, behavior that they would like to, to see in that specific colony but it's rather the other way around so yeah. they see some probably kind of translator working-class people in northern India at a tea plantation workers um, yeah. play the game and it's like oh this looks quite interesting and then they pick it up so it's 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 kind of the opposite model to, yeah. to the development of cricket so it's say, not sort of a symbol of British rule over India um, so it's not this sort of common orientalist approach of ordering and chaotic 
game into something that is disciplined yeah. and Western. Um, so it, it doesn't really follow that. Yeah, and um, I think actually when you gave the paper, we were sort of discussing, yeah, the, the kind of the pitfalls of using Saeed's approach when looking at some cultural practices, um, but also maybe I think I was. I picked up on Canadine and the way that Canadine looks at the way that the British operated in, in India through the class, the, the existing class system or, yeah. or a class system they could exploit at least. So it, um, was it a, do you think it was an activity that broke down the, 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 the race barrier, the ethnicity barrier between the British and the Indians? It's a, it's a bit of a hard, hard question. So, but, my answer would be yes and no to okay. a boring historian answer. Good historian answer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, because so when, when talking about polo in India, uh, it's important to mention it's an elite sport. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It's a very small group of the actual society that can afford polo because it's immensely expensive. Um, but then there are also mixed teams, so there are British teams and Indian teams, but then also British Indian teams that play together. So they're playing together. They're the playing two, together the and they were actually groups. amongst the be de best teams and they were, they were quite successful. Um, and then in terms of probably lowering the race barrier in terms of um, the British, uh, British newspapers acknowledge the Indian polo players without mentioning of sort of any race yeah. uh, issues. Um, they appreciate their horsemanship and they admire their ability to breed polo ponies and that sort of stuff. But then on the other hand, there is still some, some mocking going on of the Indian subject. Yeah. So, it, and yeah, it, it's, it's sort of a really difficult sort of in, in between yes and no. So I would say class and rank and that stuff still is very important, but um, so it's race as well. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't follow Canadine's thesis on this sort of. The elites are always harmonious because they are not. So if yeah. you look at the Indian and the British elites, they're very, and they use the sport in a very different, different ways, and they manage to fill it with their own meaning somehow. Um, and what about ideas of masculinity um, and the and the colonized? Because a lot of the literature about um, colonialization is about the way in which. Um, indigenous men are feminized by the colonial gaze I mean do you see that breaking down in terms of polo because it's a very rigorous game isn't it it's a very it is. masculine um, game I would say that so the idea of masculinity appeals to both groups so the Indian elite and the British um, and then the Indian they use it in sort of they use it as a way to compete against each other um, and they also like the idea of being able to sort of beat and play against the British. <laughs> yeah. um, for them it's also quite attractive uh, because they are able to demonstrate their wealth and sort of bring distance between themselves and their status and other Indian groups like a bit less wealthy cricket commu community for example. Yeah. Um, so it's a way of making yourself distinct socially, socially within, for, within for Indians. Indians. And then the Indians also use it as an informal platform to, in a political sense, to interact with the British. Um, and the British, again, they, they see it or take it as um, sort of an act of demonstrating solidarity, mm. which is very important for them to, to legitimate the British Raj in the first place. Yeah. Um, 
but they also use it to, to keep their offices busy. Because in peace times, they just sit around and don't have anything to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might get quite, quite bored. Um, yeah, yeah, so I think that's sort of the main, main points about that. And so it's really the, the structure of the British Army, is it, that brings Polo back to the UK? Is that how it makes the jump across, exactly. uh, across yeah. the... Exactly. So the, the regiments that are stationed in India for a while and then travel back to the UK um, bring Polo with them. Although the beginnings in the UK are quite wishy-washy again. There's several narratives and one claims it started in Ireland and then the other narrative is like, well, this is rubbish. It obviously started in, in Aldershot in, in the UK, okay, in England. Right, um, so you're definite about that. Uh, yeah. so there are these two sides and I think the, the second one is more plausible, but who knows? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, there were a lot of soldiers in Ireland in the 19th century but, uh, yeah, it's and just, a lot of horses. See, well. For me, it seems a bit too, too early to, to make that jump because in, in Ireland, it's by like 69 or something and then in, in England it's by 71 or something. Okay, so I probably don't happening exactly. fairly, fairly <laughs> similar times though, isn't it? Um, and you brought in some really fantastic images and I'm going to put some of those images on the uh, on the podcast website that you, you sent to me, kindly sent to me when you when you gave the oh, paper yeah, originally. Yeah. So where, where are you finding your source materials? Are you looking in India and in, and in, you know, in Britain? What sort of... What's, what's your archive? Since this was my master's project, uh, I wasn't quite able to go to India, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I would have liked that. <laughs> Although a lot, a lot of the kind of material on the empire is in Britain anyway. It's so. in Britain anyway, um, which worked really well in sort of um, unpacking the, the British agency in, in that all. And then for, for the Indian agency, I mostly relied on secondary literature. Um, so I, I was able to come down to uh, to London to visit the British Library and the Indian office records are there so that was that was quite important and the British Museum online uh, was an image collection or something uh -huh, yeah. um, found a bit of interesting stuff there and the um, UK Polo Club they have all the Polo monthly newspaper they're all digitized on their website. Really? That's amazing. Every single yeah. one of them. So that's great. So I was just spent hours. It's quite unusual hours. for sports <laughs> institutions, I think, to be so diligent about yeah. digitizing. Things. I think history yeah. is still quite important for that sort of club. Yeah. Um, Where are they based? Where is that club? I'm not quite sure. Right. I think in London. Oh, but if everything's but on the website, I guess yeah. you don't need so to actually physically just visit Just Hurlingham Polo Club. Uh -huh. um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Hurlingham, yes. And yeah, all of them are there, so you just browse through, they have a couple of really nice images um, and just yeah. follow even beyond the cut that I made in, in 1914. Yeah, I'll put some of those on the uh, on the website, the superstars of early polo. <laughs> <laughs> and this was something of a side project, you said that it was your MA dissertation and your, your PhD is still dealing with horses, isn't it? But not quite the same kind of horses. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us some more about what your doctoral research is <laughs> The horses is about? are always following through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, so my, my PhD is it's about the transition from how working horses are used in Britain um, to uh, a society that is based on, on motor power. Uh, so starting in the late 19th century uh, to the mid 20th century. Uh, but the transition is a very slow one in, pla yeah. in places like agriculture, but it's a very rapid one in, in the urban space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, London, I think, is 98% 
motorised by the early 20s. That's very quick, isn't that it? Is I guess very, the, very quick. the First World War accelerates that process, doesn't that it? That too, yeah. yeah. And then the last war scheme that is funded by the government ends in 57 in, in the agriculture for heavy horses. So it's like this massive time frame. Um, and it's, it's just quite interesting because horses were so so ubiquitous sort of they're everywhere but it's really hard to find the sources for it it's yeah just people just forget about it so like, oh, yeah right this <laughs> is interesting because um in bloomsbury we're in bloomsbury or king's cross now but you have the horse hospital lots of people see the horse hospital by russell square station and it that's a reminder of the fact of like the horses were just everywhere they're just yeah for, for everything and they they um they had an effect on everybody's life like women, men, children, working class, upper class, middle class, it didn't really matter because everyone had to rely on the horse for transport. And what, so what sort of approach are you taking to the kind of the, the rise and fall of the horse in, in the British, um, British so society? In an attempt to limit it down, um, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm going, I'm looking at it from an economic history angle mm -hmm. um, and looking sort of trying to, to figure out how a shrinking market um, works compared to, to an ever-growing market. Yeah. Because these stories are just everywhere, but then it's just a hang on. They're also sort of... They're the anecdotes to kind yeah. of spice up the, the kind of the economic analysis exactly. that you're doing. Um, yeah. So I'm, yeah. So I'm trying to figure out what sort of impact it had on, on actors that were affected by the breeders, uh, horse dealers, yeah. carters, uh, what what are they doing after? Sort of oh, I see. So what, what happens to them once once the horse is no no longer fundamental to their local economy? To, to their income and yeah. how, how are they making an income after? Um, yeah. And then also the, the government's role in, in the whole um, horse business. So it's not all free trade and, and liberal uh, yeah. at all. <laughs> There's quite a range of laws and legislation and government interference into the horse markets. It's okay. quite, quite interesting. It's a completely new field for me. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> so it's, re it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to, uh, to reading more. Um, we were both in Liverpool recently for the BSSH's conference. And I think you paid a visit to a particular statue <laughs> in Liverpool. It wasn't um, Billy Fury or the Beatles. Uh, they've got some well, very striking ones. As well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was I, I saw this statue as well. Can you tell us some more about the statue that's there that's to do with your work, really? So I sort of stumbled across it and just turned a corner and then I saw the statue of a working horse. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it commemorates the 250 years of service of heavy horses did to, to Liverpool businesses um, yeah. and they were employed in the docks for example unloading all the ships cargoes and then transporting it to the railways or wherever they were going. Um, it's quite, I thought it was quite quite nice because it's just yeah. not in people's minds that much anymore. Yeah, a nice piece of serendipity really that, yeah. that, you, <laughs> that you were there. I'm not sure if I've got a picture of it. I didn't, I didn't walk past it, um, but I can't I remember sure if I took <laughs> Have you got a picture? Yeah, oh, I maybe you can share that as well and then yeah, we'll put that on there as well. Because uh, as a nice reminder of Liverpool, it was a very good place to, to hold a conference. Um, and this was your second conference, because I think yes. your first one, you actually won the uh, postgrad yeah. prize for the best paper <laughs> based, on, yeah, based on your polo work. So uh, 
Uh, congratulations for that a year on. Uh, but what papers stood out for you this year at this year's conference uh, that, that you can remember? It's a week, it's a week it's ago a week, now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought about this question and it's, it's a bit of a mean one because <laughs> it is the horrible. conference was really nice and I yeah. liked the papers and how different they were from each other. Um, it's a really broad choice and sometimes it was hard to pick the, the panels that I would like to go to. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so well organised as well, I thought. Um, yeah, but I think name check to Liam O'Callaghan yeah. for organisation. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> he looked like a very worried man for about 72 <laughs> hours. It was really good. It was all um, a good cause. I don't know, so like, I think that the one that I still remember the best um, was the one about Sarah Myers. And I thought it was quite interesting in the way um, how sort of the female, female is set in, in that sport context. It was, this was a paper about days. judo, wasn't yes. it? And about uh, a and British woman who was a judo pr practitioner who went to exactly. Japan. Exactly, and then went to Japan and then she isn't perceived as a woman in the first place. I found quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I think that a lot of people found uh, that's Amanda Callan Spen's uh, paper about um, Sarah Myers, and it won, it won the prize that you won last year for, yeah. for being the best well paper served. at conference. <laughs> and uh, yeah, certainly merited it. Um, and during the conference, you were appointed as the membership secretary to stand in for a year whilst uh, Catherine Budd is having her maternity leave. Congratulations, Catherine, as you put in there. <laughs> um, so, uh, what are you hoping to bring to the role? I mean, what does the mem membership secretary do? Well, I feel like I'm in a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I, I really You've like already got the job, don't worry. Yes, HS. Thank you. <laughs> as, as a society, and you know, I like how open it is, and it's not like these really small, solely academic societies, but yeah. it, it's really open, and I appreciate that a lot. And. I think it's just something worthwhile to support and it's also quite nice to do something beside a PhD project. Yeah. So you not so you see there's something else out in the world, not just so you don't sort of get into a zone too much. Yeah. And um, we've got special rates for people at different stages of their careers, haven't we? Yeah. Like for postgrads and ECRs we do different rates I think. So yeah. we're, we're always looking for new members, basically, <laughs> is what we're trying to say here. <laughs> it's very open, so it's, yeah. just, it's really... <laughs> um, and you're, you're down here, or you're over here doing research. Uh, just met you at the yeah, British Library. <laughs> yeah, up north, yeah, that's true. Uh, so what were you up to today? What are you looking at today? Um, so at the moment I'm trying to, to get sources for one of my chapters um, on the remount department in right. the First World War especially. Um, because the, the Boer War didn't quite turn out very well horse-wise. Um, they yeah. made a lot of mistakes, it was very unorganised, um, a lot of horses died, um, not on the battlefield but on transport. And I really learned from that and then in the, the First World War they needed massive amount of horses and then yeah. they start building a lot of remount posts in, in England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales obviously and I think there were about 46 all over the country and I mean they're all gone now obviously. Yeah. But and what, what did these posts do? So they collected, the horses were shipped to uh, Liverpool um, or Hull or like wherever they were coming from. Major ports. And then put into trains and then 
transported to those depots where they um, so they were fed and they were sort of made used to the sort of food because the food would probably be different okay. than where the horses were coming from like Argentina, um, North America, Australia, India, all over the place really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, sort of like a horse boot camp. Yeah, yeah. Ba basically and also used to the climate. Yeah. Because that was a major problem in, in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Um, so horses not being used to hot climate. Being put onto the African continent might not have turned out that well. So they're being made used to sort of the northern climate um, and then trained and then they were shipped off to the battlefields. Yeah, so it really is a kind of a mainly France. A lost a lost story almost, isn't it really? Uh, it's really interesting about like the the organization that goes into getting that many beasts. From yeah, all I think corners it was like 5,000 horses weekly shipped off yeah. to, to France. It's just. <laughs> it's extraordinary. <laughs> it's, it's so hard to imagine, actually. And you mentioned um, that like, coming to London is going north for you, so you've come here from Florence. Yes. Um, <laughs> what sort of institution is the European University Institute? It seems kind of. So an inopportune time to talk about European institutions, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe you can try and sell oh. this one to me <laughs> or to the public. It's not technically a European <laughs> okay. union institution. Um, I think the idea of having, having a um, European international institution uh, originated in '48 okay. already, but then the idea kind of was around, but no one really did something with it. Um, and then the European University Institute was founded in 72, I believe. Um, but it's it's two different contracts. So the member states of the EU are not necessarily part of the UI because it's a different contract. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a separate institution. Yes, um, so separate conventions. And it's a, it's a postgraduate and postdoctoral institute, so there are no undergraduate students, unfortunately. Um, I think we are around 1,000, so it's really, really small. Yeah. Um, and it's set in, in the Tuscan hills behind Florence. It's quite a nice place, actually. Sounds quite sweet to me. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I love bad. Birkbeck, but it, it's not Bloomsbury is not Florence. Uh, so, so how far are you through your PhD now? So I'm, I have four years of funding, which is one of the great things about the EUI. They offer you four years of funding. Um, and I'm now halfway through, so I just started my third year. Okay. So yeah. Facing the <laughs> Bit writing. Bit of a scary thought, yes. Yeah. <laughs> How did you find out about the, uh, about the Institute? Uh, when I did my undergrad in, uh, in Germany, there was yeah. where, one... Where did you do that? In, in Constance, in very south. And... <laughs> and that one of the postdoctoral researchers who was coming in did his PhD there. Yeah. And that's when I first heard about it. Yeah, okay. And then I just applied and they took me in. Right. <laughs> no more questions asked. <laughs> well, I, I, must, um, I must add that it's neither of our birthdays. This song is not for us. Um, but, neither uh, is the cake. Unless it is your birthday, Louise. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't ask you. Uh, uh, okay. on until the end of December. Okay, well, maybe that's a good time to finish. <laughs> but thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for and, having me. Yeah, and for sharing your research with us. And uh, do get in touch with the, the BSSH or tweet us at the BSSH's account, um, which you can find on Twitter quite easily, um, to give feedback about the episodes or to uh, just ask us questions about what we do and what events we have coming up. 
Um, and until the next time uh, I podcast something uh, from one of our researchers, that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Bye.